This is Medieval Death Trip for Monday, March 11th, 2019, episode 68, The Confession of St. Patrick, part one. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Last St. Patrick's Day, we featured an excerpt from Miracu's Life of St. Patrick, a biography chock-full of wonders and miracles and legendary material, and written about 200 years after Patrick's death. In that episode, I mentioned that Patrick's very historical reality has at times been doubted because he makes almost no impression on the ecclesiastical historical record until that biography and others start appearing two centuries later. As a result... Patrick's existence is kind of anchored by two surviving texts written by him, a relatively short letter chastising a British king named Caroticus, and Patrick's Confessio, or Confession, an autobiographical spiritual testament. And I said then that maybe we do the Confessio next March. And behold, March has arrived, so let's do it. The Confessio is not a very long text, uh, so over the course of this episode and the next, we'll do the whole thing, start to finish. Uh, Consider it a kind of audio booklet. It is a bit different from our usual kind of text. Uh, It has a biographical component, but it's not particularly concerned about maintaining a strong narrative thread. Uh, It sort of dips into narrative moments and events from his life while carrying on a more general spiritual meditation and self-reflection. It's probably the most overtly devotional text we've had on the show, uh, and that's certainly not going to be to everyone's tastes. But interspersed between paragraphs on God's mercy and the call of the prophets, you do get some very interesting little stories. And in both those and the more sermon-like material, you get a glimpse of a mind, of an individual psychology that's very intriguing. It's perhaps not as articulate in its self-awareness as Augustine is in his considerably more famous Confessions, but I think if you take it as a monologue, then even if you're not particularly interested in the spiritual message, in the construction of that message, you will still find a great deal of human interest. Patrick tells us that he is writing because, quote, I wish my brethren and kinsfolk to know what manner of man I am, and that they may be able to understand the desire of my soul. End quote. And I think he's successful at that. This text is a chance to get to know a 5th century person from the fringes of the crumbling Roman Empire, and that's nothing to sneeze at. Admittedly, the Confessio is not as flashy or rawly entertaining as seeing Patrick evoking God to strike dead some druid priests like we saw in Mercury's biography last year, but I think it's still worth a listen. Our earliest surviving manuscripts of the Confessio, uh, which was composed in the mid-400s, which technically makes this uh, late antiquity death trip, uh, and by the way, Patrick's two texts are the oldest surviving text we have known to have been written in Ireland. Uh, anyway, the manuscript copies we have come from the 9th and 10th centuries. Uh, some introduce this text as the Book of St. Patrick, uh, and some as the Confession of St. Patrick. As near as I've been able to gather from surveying the scholarship, uh, this is where the title Confessio comes from. As with many of our early texts, there's no indication that the author packaged the work with a title. Much has been made about how Patrick's text fits into the genre of Confessio, uh, especially placed besides Augustine's Confessions. 
but it seems to me that's largely stemming from what may be a much later designation. Uh, There's debate about whether Patrick even knew of Augustine's Confessions. Uh, That book had only been written maybe 50 or 60 years before Patrick is writing, and that's not a lot of time for manuscripts to get around in the 5th century. The scholar Georg Misch uh, identified a handful of sentences in Patrick that have notably similar phrasings as sentences from Augustine, but nothing that amounts to direct quotation uh, or that I think couldn't be explained by two authors of similar education expressing similar ideas in similar words. Uh, Ludwig Biele, uh, the editor of a critical edition of the Latin text of the Confessio, sees Paul's apostolic apologia in the letters to the Corinthians as being Patrick's primary model for his text. But while the genre of spiritual confession may have only been nascent when Patrick was writing, his text does fit its major elements. As a term, confessio has three main significances in church Latin. It is confessio peccati, the confession of sins, or the sacrament of penance. It is confessio laudis, the praise of God, and it's confessio fidei, the confession or profession of faith, especially of a martyr before a tribunal, where it's also sometimes called depositio, or the deposition of faith. But Patrick and Augustine manifest elements of all three in their texts. They acknowledge their own sins, partly in a kind of repudiation of a faithless youth, and also as a recognition of their ongoing spiritual struggles and imperfections, but they also bear witness to what they see as the power of God and to God's mercy and forgiveness in their own conversion narrative. And lastly, they use their spiritual autobiography to affirm sound doctrine and call others to the faith. Additionally, Augustine has a kind of ancillary goal in his confessions of validating himself as a prosecutor of heretics, Uh, and Patrick, too, is motivated to defend himself against those who have challenged his position as bishop for Ireland. Um, And in connection with that, there is a confession, uh, a frustratingly unspecific one, uh, in the half of the book we'll hear today, Um, but that confession clearly is not the confessio. This last point, uh, though, raises an interesting question about who Patrick's audience is. In making his self-defense, he seems to be addressing the ecclesiastic authorities in Britain and perhaps in Gaul. But are these people who need the doctrine of the Trinity or of grace explained to them? In those places, he seems to be preaching to his flock. Uh, So I'll play professor here and challenge you to listen and make a hypothesis about whom Patrick is writing for. Um, And maybe he has more than one audience. As to the content of this part of the Confessio we'll hear today, uh, Patrick covers his early life up to the start of his mission to convert the Irish. I said it was lacking in wonders, um, but that's not strictly true. Patrick's discovery of his calling comes with many of the motifs of the prophets, including a series of dream visions, and there's even one example of a prophetic or apostolic wonder-working, albeit of not an obviously supernatural kind, uh, in the provision of food in the wilderness. The narrative elements of the story here break down into three main episodes. The first is Patrick's being taken into slavery. I tried to get more information about slavery in 5th century Ireland, but did not have much luck. I went down the row of histories of early Ireland on the shelf of a university library, and in the books where it appeared in the index at all, slavery was often just addressed in cursory references, and indeed often just in remarks on how Patrick came to Ireland. 
I only came across one book that went into a multi-page discussion of slavery, and frankly, that one did the kind of thing I talked about in our Ibn Battuta episode from last fall, where it laid out the basics of slavery, and then cited some provisions for slaves in the law codes as evidence that Irish society had a fundamental awareness that slavery was an unjust condition and were trying to codify some rights and justice for slaves, and it all kind of smacked of that it wasn't as bad as you think, or at least it could have been worse form of apologetics for slavery. But that said, one of the reasons for a lack of solid analysis of slavery in Ireland could simply be that there is very little evidence, documentary or archaeological, to flesh out much beyond knowing that it existed and that it largely involved taking foreign captives as slaves. Indeed, accounts of Patrick's life often say he was abducted by pirates or raiders or other terms that connote a kind of rogue element, but the same law codes cited by my one source for the provision of certain protections for slaves also include as a different source points out, stipulations for tributes that the High King of Ireland paid to his tributary kings, and they in turn to their chieftains. One of these reads, quote, The stipend of the King of Brewery from the King of Ira, without sorrow, ten tunics brown-red, ten foreigners without Irish. End quote. Another says, Entitled is the King of Kinalaya to five shields, five slender swords, five bondmen brought across the bristling surface of the sea, end quote. So this capturing of people from the coast of Great Britain was, as it were, part of the state economy. So rather than pirates, you might at best characterize this raiding party as privateers, uh, if not actual agents of some Irish chief or king. The other thing that perhaps explains the lack of special attention to Irish slaveholding is that it wasn't a uniquely Irish phenomenon. Slavery was still part of the Roman Empire. As thraldom, it was practiced also among the Germanic pagans outside the empire. Indeed, in the letter we have from Patrick, one of the things he chastises the British and nominally Christian Caroticus for is taking slaves. And in that letter, he also reveals that when he himself was captured, he was taken alongside many of the slaves that worked on his family's estate. Slavery was everywhere. So, though Ireland was outside of the Roman Empire, any of the many scholarly treatises on Roman slavery probably serve about as well to address the topic. But I don't know if that entirely accounts for why so many historians of Ireland seem reticent to say more than a few sentences about it. Then again, maybe they're following in Patrick's footsteps. Frustratingly, and as an example of the vagueness of the documentary evidence we have for slavery, Patrick does not give us much detail about his years as a slave. He says that he was made a shepherd, and that he rediscovered his faith during his captivity. And while he gives the impression of isolation and loneliness in this brief account, some have suggested that he likely remained to some degree among the quote, thousands he says he was captured with, and that he may well have been part of a Christian community of British slaves. Certainly, one of the reasons for taking slaves from foreign countries is that it makes them much easier to control, since you're cutting them off from not just family and friends, but also their culture and language. 
But that very thing also binds slave communities together, where possible. Uh, And it's not hard to imagine Patrick's rather underdeveloped childhood Christianity being stoked, uh, not just alone in the wilderness, but by exposure to the faith of other captive Christians. It is a bit odd that he wouldn't mention such an experience, uh, except that maybe he does, uh, indirectly. One of his dream visions includes the sound of voices back in Ireland crying out to him, and these may be the voices not just of the Irish, but of that slave community he left behind when he escaped. This escape is the second major narrative component we're getting today. Uh, It is one of the most detailed bits of storytelling that we get in the Confessio, Uh, But some of its most significant details are dropped in rather casually, uh, and they're easy to miss. So at the risk of slightly spoiling the plot, I'm going to expand on some of those details now, so that as you listen, you can visualize the richer picture that Patrick doesn't quite fill in. So, Patrick runs away from the forested lands where he has been watching sheep to the coast. He gives no details about this aspect of his escape. Did he just wander off? Was he pursued? He doesn't say. But he starts to tell us more when he gets to the coast, where he seeks passage on a boat. And he finds one. He doesn't tell us much about it, other than that the crew was all pagan. But here's what we can deduce uh, from the little details he drops later. The ship probably had a cargo of Irish wolfhounds, which is a neat little detail, this ship full of dogs. Uh, Patrick makes a quick reference to there being dogs traveling with them when they land, without saying more, Uh, but we know from other sources that wolfhounds were a well-known Irish export. He also doesn't tell us where they arrive at on the other end of the journey, except that it's obviously not Ireland. There are a few possibilities, uh, but many scholars favor the rather wild coast of Brittany. Patrick says that they travel through desert, but we need to understand this in the old-fashioned sense of the word, as merely a deserted or uninhabited place. A forest can be a desert in this sense. It doesn't have to be arid and sandy. A wilderness would be a reasonable synonym, um, but I'll stick with our translator's choice. The other interesting thing is that, uh, and again, Patrick doesn't state this at all, uh, but the fact that the crew apparently abandons the ship on the coast when they arrive indicates that they aren't just merchants— They are possibly immigrants or refugees. Uh, One rather wonders if they might not be another band of escaped slaves or political exiles or outlaws. So the kind of haste with which they seem to be leaving Ireland and the suspicion with which they treat Patrick when he seeks passage with them acquires a different significance if you picture this voyage that way as a whole group who are leaving Ireland on a one-way trip for whatever reason. While we're on this part of the story, I'll also briefly gloss an odd phrase we're going to encounter. Patrick says as he boards this ship that, quote, On that day I refused to suck their breasts because of the fear of God, end quote. What does that mean? Uh, It's generally been taken just as an idiom for entering into a close relationship with them. But some have suggested that it might be slightly more literal, uh, in that many societies have rituals of symbolic adoption for when an outsider is brought into a group, including things like mock births, uh, and this might be an allusion to such a ceremony. Um, But that interpretation is speculative. The third narrative episode involves a conflict Patrick has with the church authorities in Britain surrounding his appointment as Bishop for Ireland, which marks the start of his missionary return to Ireland many years after escaping slavery. 
but I'm not going to talk about that right now. We'll revisit it after hearing the text. I also have some things I want to say about Patrick's language. Uh, It's a major motif of this part of his book, uh, his unlearnedness and unpolished Latin as a second language. Um, But we've got so much story to cover, um, that's going to have to wait until next episode. For now, let's get into the confessio. Oh, but first, one last footnote. In one of Patrick's dreams, he talks about crying out the name uh, Helios. That's uh, one Latin form of the Hebrew Elijah, and when he does it, it is also functioning as a pun on Helios, the Greek for the sun. Patrick is not original in invoking this pun. It was a bit of a commonplace, uh, and it doesn't mean that he spoke Greek. Um, But knowing that will help you make better sense of that moment in the story. All right. Here's the first half of the Confessio of St. Patrick, as translated by Newport J.D. White, with a few adjustments of my own. I, Patrick the sinner, am the most illiterate and the least of all the faithful, and contemptible in the eyes of very many. My father was Calpurnius, a deacon, one of the sons of Potitus, a presbyter, who belonged to the village of Banavem Tabernii. Now he had a small farm hard by where I was taken captive. I was then about sixteen years of age. I knew not the true God, and went into captivity to Ireland with many thousands of persons, according to our deserts, because we departed away from God, and kept not his commandments, and were not obedient to our priests, who used to admonish us for our salvation. And the Lord poured upon us the fury of his anger, and scattered us amongst many heathen, even unto the ends of the earth, where now my littleness may be seen amongst men of another nation." And there the Lord opened the understanding of my unbelief, that, even though late, I might call my faults to remembrance, and that I might turn with all my heart to the Lord my God, who regarded my low estate, and pitied the youth of my ignorance, and kept me before I knew him, and before I had discernment or could distinguish between good and evil, and protected me and comforted me as a father does his son. Wherefore then I cannot keep silence, nor would it be fitting, concerning such great benefits and such great grace as the Lord hath vouchsafed to bestow on me in the land of my captivity. Because this is what we can render unto him, namely, that after we have been chastened and have come to the knowledge of God, we shall exalt and praise his wondrous works before every nation which is under the whole heaven. Because there is no other God, nor was there ever any in times past, nor shall there be hereafter, except God the Father, unbegotten, without beginning, from whom all things take their beginning, holding all things, as we say, and his Son, Jesus Christ, whom we affirm verily to have always existed with the Father before the creation of the world, with the Father after the manner of a spiritual existence, begotten ineffably before the beginning of anything." and by him were made things visible and invisible. He was made man, and having overcome death, he was received up into heaven to the Father. And he gave to him all power above every name of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And let every tongue confess to him that Jesus Christ is Lord and God in whom we believe, and we look for his coming soon to be. Be the judge of the quick and the dead, who will render to every man according to his deeds." 
and he shed on us abundantly the Holy Ghost, the gift and earnest of immortality, who makes those who believe and obey to become children of God the Father and joint heirs with Christ, whom we confess and adore as one God in the Trinity of the Holy Name. For he himself hath said through the prophet, Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. And again he saith, It is honorable to reveal and confess the works of God. Nevertheless, although I am faulty in many things, I wish my brethren and kinsfolk to know what manner of man I am, and that they may be able to understand the desire of my soul. I am not ignorant of the testimony of my Lord, who witnesseth in the psalm, Thou shalt destroy them that speak a lie. And again he saith, The mouth that belieth killeth the soul. And the same Lord saith in the gospel, The idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Wherefore then I ought exceedingly, with fear and trembling, to dread this sentence in that day, when no one will be able to absent himself or hide, but when all of us, without exception, shall have to give account of even the smallest sins before the judgment seat of the Lord Christ. On this account, I had long since thought of writing, but hesitated until now, for I feared lest I should fall under the censure of men's tongues, and because I have not studied as have others, who in the most approved fashion have drunk in both law and the holy scriptures alike, and have never changed their speech from their infancy, but rather have been always rendering it more perfect. For my speech and language is translated into a tongue not my own, as can be easily proved from the savor of my writing, in what fashion I have been taught and am learned in speech, for, saith the wise man, by the tongue will be discovered understanding and knowledge and the teaching of truth. But what avails an excuse, no matter how true, especially when accompanied by presumption, since now I myself in mine old age earnestly desire that which in youth I did not acquire, because my sins prevented me from mastering what I had read through before? But who gives me credence even if I should repeat the statement that I made at the outset? When a youth, nay, almost a boy, I went into captivity in language as well as in person before I knew what I should earnestly desire or what I ought to shun. And so today I blush and am exceedingly afraid to lay bare my lack of education because I am unable to make my meaning plain in a few words to the learned. For as the spirit yearns, the human disposition displays the souls of men and their understandings. But if I had had only the same privileges as others, nevertheless I would not keep silence on account of the reward. And if perchance it seems to not a few that I am thrusting myself forward in this matter with my want of knowledge and my slow tongue, yet it is written, The tongue of the stammerers shall quickly learn to speak peace. How much, rather, should we earnestly desire so to do, who are, he saith, the epistle of Christ for salvation unto the ends of the earth, although not a learned one, yet ministered most powerfully, written in your hearts, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. And again the Spirit witnesseth, and husbandry, literally rusticity, was ordained by the Most High. Whence I, who was at first illiterate, an exile, unlearned verily, who knew not how to provide for the future, but this I do know most surely, that before I was afflicted, I was like a stone lying in the deep mire. And he that is mighty came, and in his mercy lifted me up, and verily raised me aloft and placed me on the top of the wall. 
and therefore I ought to cry aloud that I may also render somewhat to the Lord for his benefits, which are so great both here and in eternity, the value of which the mind of men cannot estimate. Wherefore then be ye astonished, ye that fear God both small and great, and ye clever sirs, ye rhetoricians, hear therefore and search it out. Who was it that called up me, fool though I be, out of the midst of those who seem to be wise and skilled in the law, and powerful in word and in everything? And me, moreover, the abhorred of this world, did he inspire beyond others, if such I were, only that with reverence and godly fear and unblameably I should faithfully be of service to the nation to whom the love of Christ conveyed me and presented me as long as I live if I should be worthy. In fine, that I should with humility and in truth diligently do them service. And so it is proper that according to the rule of faith in the Trinity, I should define doctrine and make known the gift of God and everlasting consolation without being held back by danger, and spread everywhere the name of God without fear, confidently, so that even after my decease I may leave a legacy to my brethren and sons whom I baptized in the Lord, many thousands of persons. And I was not worthy, nor such a one as that the Lord should grant this to his poor servant after calamities and such great difficulties, after a life of slavery, after many years, that he should bestow on me so great grace towards that nation, a thing that formerly in my youth I never hoped for nor thought of. Now, after I came to Ireland, tending flocks was my daily occupation, and constantly I used to pray in the daytime. Love of God and the fear of Him increased more and more, and faith grew, and the Spirit was moved, so that in one day I would say as many as a hundred prayers, and at night nearly as many, so that I used to stay even in the woods and on the mountain to this end. And before daybreak I used to be roused to prayer in snow, in frost, in rain, and I felt no hurt, nor was there any sluggishness in me, as I now see, because then the Spirit was fervent within me. And there verily one night I heard in my sleep a voice saying to me, Thou fastest to good purpose, thou who art soon to go to thy fatherland. And again, after a very short time, I heard the answer of God saying to me, Lo, thy ship is ready. And it was not near at hand, but was distant perhaps two hundred miles. And I had never been there, nor did I know anyone there. And thereupon I shortly took to flight, and left the man with whom I had been for six years, and I came in the strength of God, who prospered my way for good, and I met with nothing to alarm me until I reached that ship. And on the very day that I arrived, the ship left its moorings, and I said that I had to sail thence with them, but the shipmaster was annoyed, and replied roughly and angrily, On no account seek to go with us. When I heard this, I parted from them to go to the hut where I was lodging, and on the way I began to pray, and before I had finished my prayer, I heard one of them shouting loudly after me, Come quickly, for these men are calling thee. And straightway I returned to them. And they began to say to me, Come, for we receive thee in good faith. Make friends with us in any way thou desirest. And so, on that day I refused to suck their breasts, because of the fear of God. But, nevertheless, I hoped that some of them would come into the faith of Jesus Christ, for they were heathen, 
and on this account I continued with them, and forthwith we set sail. And after three days we reached land, and journeyed for twenty-eight days through a desert, and food failed them, and hunger overcame them. And one day the shipmaster began to say to me, How is this, O Christian? Thou sayest that thy God is great and almighty, wherefore then canst thou not pray for us, for we are in danger of starvation? Hardly shall we ever see a human being again. Then I said plainly to them, Turn in good faith and with all your heart to the Lord my God, to whom nothing is impossible, that this day he may send you food in your journey until ye be satisfied, for he has abundance everywhere. And, by the help of God, so it came to pass. Lo, a herd of swine appeared in the way before our eyes, and they killed many of them, and in that place they remained two nights, and they were well refreshed, and their dogs were sated, for many of them had fainted and were left half-dead by the way. And after this they rendered hearty thanks to God, and I became honorable in their eyes, and from that day on they had food in abundance. Moreover, they found wild honey and gave me a piece of it, and one of them said, This is offered in sacrifice. Thanks be to God, I tasted none of it. Now, on that same night, when I was sleeping, Satan assailed me mightily, in such sort as I shall remember as long as I am in this body. And he fell upon me as it were a huge rock, and I had no power over my limbs. But whence did it occur to me, to my ignorant mind, to call upon Helios? And on this I saw the sun rise in the heaven, and while I was shouting Helios with all my might, lo, the splendor of that sun fell upon me and straightway shook all weight from off me. And I believe that I was helped by Christ my Lord, and that his spirit was even then calling aloud on my behalf. And I trust that it will be so in the day of my trouble, as he saith in the gospel, In that day the Lord testifieth, It is not ye that speak, but the spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And again, after many years, I went into captivity once more. And so on that first night, I remained with them. Now I heard the answer of God saying to me, For two months thou shalt be with them. And so it came to pass. On the sixtieth night after, the Lord delivered me out of their hands. Moreover, he provided for us on our journey food and fire and dry quarters every day until on the fourteenth day we reached human habitations. As I stated above, for twenty-eight days we journeyed through a desert, and on the night on which we reached human habitations, we had, in truth, no food left. And again, after a few years, I was in Britain with my kindred, who received me as a son, and in good faith besought me that at all events now, after the great tribulations which I had undergone, I would not depart from them any whither. And there, verily, I saw in the night visions a man whose name was Victoricus, coming, as it were, from Ireland with countless letters. And he gave me one of them, and I read the beginning of the letter, which was entitled, The Voice of the Irish. And while I was reading aloud the beginning of the letter, I thought that at that very moment I heard the voice of them who lived beside the wood of Foklet, which is nigh unto the western sea. And thus they cried, as with one mouth, We beseech thee, holy youth, to come and walk among us once more. 
and I was exceedingly broken in heart and could read no further, and so I awoke. Thanks be to God that after very many years the Lord granted to them according to their cry. And one appeared another night, whither within me or beside me I cannot tell, God knoweth, in most admirable words which I heard and could not understand, except at the end of the prayer he thus affirmed, He who laid down his life for thee, he it is who speaketh in thee. And so I awoke rejoicing. And another time I saw him praying within me, and I was, as it were, within my body, and I heard one praying over me, that is, over the inner man, and there he was praying mightily with groanings. And meanwhile I was astonished and was marveling and thinking who it could be that was praying within me. But at the end of the prayer he affirmed that he was the Spirit. And so I awoke, and I remembered how the Apostle saith, The Spirit helpeth the infirmities of our prayer, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered, which cannot be expressed in words. And again, the Lord our Advocate maketh intercession for us. And when I was assailed by not a few of my elders who came and urged my sins against my laborious episcopate, Certainly on that day I was sore thrust at that I might fall both here and in eternity. But the Lord graciously spared the stranger and sojourner for his name's sake, and he helped me exceedingly when I was thus trampled on, so that I did not come badly into disgrace and reproach. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge as sin. After the lapse of thirty years, they found, as occasion against me, a matter which I had confessed before I was a deacon. Because of anxiety, with sorrowful mind, I disclosed to my dearest friend things that I had done in my youth one day, nay, in one hour, because I had not yet overcome. I cannot tell, God knoweth, if I was then fifteen years old, and I did not believe in the living God, nor had I since my infancy, but I remained in death and in unbelief until I had been chastened exceedingly and humbled in truth by hunger and nakedness, and that daily. Contrarywise, I did not proceed to Ireland of my own accord until I was nearly worn out. But this was rather well for me, because thus I was amended by the Lord, and he fitted me so that I should today be something which was once far from me, that I should care for and be busy about the salvation of others, whereas then I did not even think about myself. And so on that day on which I was rejected by the aforesaid persons whom I have mentioned, in that night I saw in the night visions, there was a writing void of honor over against my face. And meanwhile I heard the answer of God, saying to me, We have seen with anger the face of the person designated, the name being expressed. Nor did he say thus, Thou hast seen with anger, but we have seen with anger as if in that matter he had joined himself with me. As he said, He that toucheth you is as he that toucheth the apple of mine eye. Therefore I thank him who hath enabled me in all things, because he did not hinder me from the journey on which I had resolved, and from my labor which I had learnt from Christ my Lord. But rather I felt in myself no little virtue proceeding from him, and my faith has been approved in the sight of God and of men. Wherefore then I say boldly that my conscience does not blame me either here or hereafter. 
God is my witness that I have not lied in the matters that I have stated to you. But rather, I am grieved for my dearest friend that we should have merited to hear such an answer as that, a man to whom I had even entrusted my soul. And I ascertained from not a few of the brethren before that contention, uh, it was a time when I was not present, nor was I in Britain, nor will the story originate with me, that he too had fought for me in my absence. Even he himself had said to me with his own lips, Lo, thou art to be raised to the rank of bishop, of which I was not worthy. But how did it occur to him afterwards to put me to shame publicly before everyone, good and bad, in respect of an office which before that he had of his own accord and gladly conceded to me and the Lord too, who is greater than all? I have said enough. Nevertheless, I ought not to hide the gift of God which he bestowed upon us in the land of my captivity, because then I earnestly sought him, and there I found him, and he kept me from all iniquities. This is my belief, because of his indwelling spirit who hath worked in me until this day. Boldly again am I speaking, but God knoweth if man had said this to me, perchance I would have held my peace for the love of Christ." Hence, therefore, I render unwearied thanks to my God, who kept me faithful in the day of my temptation, so that today I can confidently offer to him a sacrifice, as a living victim, my soul, to Christ my Lord, who saved me out of all my troubles, so that I may say, Who am I, O Lord, or what is my calling, that thou hast worked together with me with such divine power? so that today among the heathen I should steadfastly exult and magnify thy name wherever I may be, and that not only in prosperity, but also in troubles, so that whatever may happen to me, whether good or bad, I ought to receive it with an equal mind, and ever render thanks to God, who showed me that I might trust him endlessly, as one that cannot be doubted, and who heard me, so that I, ignorant as I am, and in that last days, should be bold to undertake this work so holy and so wonderful, so that I might imitate in some degree those of whom the Lord long ago foretold, when foreshowing that his gospel would be for a witness unto all nations before the end of the world. And accordingly, as we see, this has been so fulfilled. Behold, we are witnesses that the gospel has been preached to the limit beyond which no man dwells. So, that brings us to roughly the halfway mark in Patrick's Confessio. We still have his actual mission to Ireland to get to. Uh, this was not a simple undertaking, as the end of the portion of the text we just heard indicates. Patrick's own narrative can easily lead you to imagine this all as a very personal undertaking, that he feels a direct and personal call to go and preach to the Irish, and the forces holding him back are his family, who don't want to lose him to the Irish a second time, uh, and some sort of argument over his suitability to be a bishop and representative of the church abroad from a rather vaguely indicated group of elders. And even this is framed in terms of Patrick's bitterness over the perceived betrayal by an old friend who revealed to the elders this unnamed sin that Patrick committed as a teenager and confessed to this friend years later and was then revealed by this friend even more years later than that. Um, and we could sit and speculate about what this mystery sin was, 
Was it stealing a neighbor's pears, as Augustine confesses, uh, along with experiencing teenage lust? Uh, Or was it something that would have been more stigmatizing? It's a bit fruitless, uh, and that's not a pear pun. Well, maybe it is. Uh, But there's just not enough data to draw conclusions from. What we can fill in, though, is the larger political context of Patrick's activity, which he mostly omits in his book. On the political side, Patrick is operating during the reign of the British King Vortigern. If you've studied any post-Roman British history, you'll recognize that as one of the biggest names of the period. Uh, Vortigern is the king who is credited with bringing over Saxon mercenaries, and ultimately settlers, whom he solicited in part to attack and intimidate the Irish as a way to curb exactly the kinds of raids that took Patrick into slavery. The saber-rattling gets Vortigern an agreement with the Irish kings to end hostilities, a truce which may well have helped license the arrival of a British-born bishop into the country. All this history needs some brackets around it, because Vortigern is a figure like Patrick, who shades over quite quickly into unreliable legend. But thinking about these seismic political events helps shake us out of the perception of just this being the happenstance of a quiet Romano-British village being raided by pirates and one of their captives becoming a missionary to the land he happened to wind up in. Church politics, too, are quite fraught at this moment in time, as the British church remained in the grip of the Pelagian heresy, and there's a serious schism between the British bishops and the continent. Not long before Patrick's mission, Pope Celestine sent a man named Palladius to be bishop to the small Christian community in Ireland, partly as a direct effort to ensure that Ireland did not fall under the control of the tainted British church. This is almost certainly hanging over Patrick's appointment. Will the British bishops, who are not on the best terms with Rome at the moment, recognize Patrick's appointment and allow him to leave the country? Ultimately, they did, and that might be partly because Patrick is not a trained theologian. He's an earnest preacher, but he does not address these doctrinal disputes. There are no signs of Pelagianism in his writing, but at the same time, there aren't any signs of the Augustinian arguments against Pelagianism in his work either. So he presents as a safe choice for both sides of the controversy. However, We'll see next episode that Patrick resists a summons back to Britain later in his mission, and again, he will frame it in these personal terms, but the underlying issue is almost certainly the idea that he cannot allow any possibility that he, and thus the Irish church, might be perceived as being subordinate to the British bishops. It's yet another example of the fight for one's Episcopal independence uh, that we've seen many instances of in other texts that we've looked at. Um, but we're going to get to that whole thing next episode. Before we go, uh, did anyone catch the little suggestion of sleep paralysis we had there in the Helios dream? Satan pressing down upon Patrick as a great weight. Uh, a nice little unexpected callback to last episode's discussion of Incubi. And since we're in an Irish mood here with St. Patrick, I thought I'd give you an Irish riddle. This one is not, as far as I know, a medieval riddle. It was recorded by a 19th century folklorist named David Fitzgerald, alongside lots of other ancient and medieval and modern riddles. Uh, But I'm looking to expand my riddle repertoire a little bit. Um, So here's an Irish riddle of uncertain date. I have a green coat and tis too short. 
Cut a bit off, and tis long enough. Take a second to think about it. Pause if you like. Maybe bring up the final Jeopardy theme music on YouTube. All right. So, the green coat is the grass, and you cut into that grass a bit, and you get the answer. The grave, which, being dug out, is now a good fit. And that brings us to the end of this first part of our two-part look at the Confessio. I'll be back in the near vicinity of St. Patrick's Day itself with the conclusion. Until then, you can keep up with us on Twitter at MDT Podcast. You can send me email to patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com. And at that .com website, you can find more information about this and every episode of the show, including references, uh, which I have quite a stack of for these St. Patrick episodes. And you can help support the show with your donations through Patreon at patreon.com slash mdtpodcast, and supporters receive access to additional bonus content. So, we'll be back soon. Until then, may all your wolfhounds be well-fed and your teenage sins unpublished. And thanks for listening.